What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up Ship Podcast. This is Foundations, episode two. Uh, we're back again with uh, Chief Andrew. Uh, he's going to be going over building trust today. Uh, got a pretty good reception last time. Pumped to get another one out to you all. And then uh, he mentions it at the end, but please, please, please give us feedback. If there's something we can do better in that regard, uh, we would very much like to, uh, especially Chief Andrew. It's like, not a podcaster, not a guy that has experience with this. So if there's anything that you have constructive criticism wise, please shoot it to any of the platform contacts uh, that he lists in the end via either email or social media or whatever DMS. It's all, it's all good. We just want to hear from you uh, and make sure that this is meeting the mark. Uh, we want to make sure this is meeting an actual need and that if not, we can adjust fire. So uh, with that, I will turn it over to chief Andrew. This is Foundations number two. Foundations number one was done about four episodes ago on power bases. And I am, I haven't introduced myself before. I was just kind of HMC, but I am uh, Chief Andrew. Uh, and I am going to be taking you through building trust today. What is trust? Trust is one of those things in the Navy that we just kind of take for granted. You have to trust the mess. You have to trust your CMC or your CO, or you trust that your shipmates know their job or know what to do. But while there is an aspect of trust towards an organization or towards somebody who sits in a particular role, like a commanding officer or something like that, um, trust really is inherently personal. It's not something that is generalizable across the entire organization. It has to have an evaluation with the individual whom you're going to trust and a, a little bit of an aspect on how much you're willing to trust or what your baseline for trust is. It doesn't have a singular definition, and we're going to kind of get into the history of how you define trust in, in my next section, but it, and it's highly fluid based on the context of the relationship in which it's developed, right? So there's a significant difference between a leader and a subordinate or a leader and a follower, depending on how you want to define that in a, in a trust-based relationship compared to the trust between a friend and a friend or even a best friend and a friend. There's differences in trust between family members. And even that, the dynamic is impacted. Like, is it a parent to a child? a brother to a sister, an aunt to a niece, all of these have different aspects of trust and why the trust even exists. And then there's the kind of trust that exists between a mentor or a mentee. You can't really define the trust between all of these in the same way. There, there has to be some slight differences. The literature regarding trust is extensive. It comes from everywhere. Psychology, game theory, organizational leadership as they call it now, or management theory, all over the place. Sociology. But we're going to, in this podcast, we're going to cover the ones, uh, like the major ones, and then discuss ways and stories on how I have built and how I've absolutely failed to build trust in various jobs that I've held. So with that, let's just get right into it. In 1995, Mayor Davis and Shoreman uh, created an integrative model of organizational trust. For those who don't know, a model in academia is a usable outline on a theoretical concept. This model that they created on trust was basically a diagram that you can look at and say, hey, all of these things feed into certain other things and that's what leads to trust 
and creates a feedback loop, right? And I'm going to explain that all in a little bit. But this model that they created in 1995 is one of the main models that identifies components of trust and the feedback loop that creates trust as more of a dynamic function rather than a static trait. Up until this point, people had pretty much just believed that trust was a baseline trait. It was kind of like leadership is a trait or or trait-based leadership theories is that you either have it or you don't. You're either trustworthy or you're not trustworthy. That's that's what the prevailing models before 1995 were. And Mayer and his colleagues just didn't buy into that. They believed that there was a little bit more input, dynamic factors, and feedback to what trust ultimately is. Their big thing that they did in 1995 was they didn't really do any specific studying themselves in this particular report that I'm about to talk about. Um, they, they'd done a lot of research prior that they kind of drew on, and they drew on a lot of other research that had already been completed, right? So this 1995 article that they wrote in the Academy for Management Review is kind of like a meta-analysis, which I'm not sure, you know, for anybody who doesn't know what a meta-analysis is, it's basically an analysis of research that was done by other people. It's not research that they did by themselves. In this model that they created, taking this meta-analysis look at trust behaviors and how trust has been defined across psychology, sociology, game theory, geopolitics, um, all of these kind of different aspects of academia, they created this integrative model. And this integrative model has a lot of different aspects to it, right? But the first ones that we're going to talk about are factors of perceived trustworthiness, right? Or baseline traits that a trustee has. Now, these traits are obviously from the perspective of the person who's potentially going to trust the trustee. So all of this is kind of a perception thing. There's some that are more than others, but your first trait of a trustee that that factors into whether or not trust is even possible is their ability. And their ability is like a group of skills competencies, characteristics that enable someone to have influence with some specific domain. So in our world, I'm a corpsman. I have a little bit like my abilities within medical or as like a field medical technician, like battlefield medicine, my abilities within that earn me a little bit of trust within that very specific domain. You know, if somebody's asking me about a medical record or somebody's asking me about an immunization or what to do for a bullet hole, my abilities in that arena allow me the at least the opportunity to be trusted with that question or with the risk of asking me that question. This Because the abilities are so specific to a domain, though, it's limited to that area. So my abilities as a corpsman do not allow me or give me a like a trustworthy trait in other aspects of the Navy. You know, nobody asks me about fire controlman stuff for the most part. Well, no, not even for the most part. Like they never do because I have no ability there. Nobody, nobody cares or trusts me to launch a missile off of a boat. Not my job. Nobody asks me about it, right? That's not, that's not within my ability wheelhouse. And kind of like another really clear example of that is I deployed to Jordan for like 45 days or something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't anything crazy. Um, it was just for an exercise, nothing, nothing high speed about it at all, really. But I was tasked to take over that deployment as far as the medical side, because the HM2, who was originally slated to be like 
the we call it a senior medical department representative or SMDR, but realistically, it's pretty much like the department head of medical. So the HM2 who was previously tasked to do that just didn't have the abilities to handle the job. So he ended up getting fired by the commanding officer and somebody had to like pick up the reins. And my chief at the time I had developed a pretty good relationship with. So he just kind of tasked me with it and and with it like and it was two weeks until deployment time so it was pretty pretty short notice but while in country and as a as a second class i was still the senior medical department representative i was the department head of medical for that commanding officer and every day for the war room briefs he expected me to give him a department head's brief and you know i did that and everything that i said in regards to medical was gold because in that room my abilities solely my abilities earned me trust with the commanding officer because nobody else in the room had those abilities. So so he really didn't have a choice other than to trust me. But the trust between that commanding officer and myself was built very much on my abilities and almost nothing else. You know, as time went on, it probably changed. But at the very beginning, he only knew me for 14 days before we were in country. So he had to rely on the fact that I knew my medical stuff as a baseline for his trust. The second thing that is uh, like the second trait of a potential trustee that is necessary and factors into whether or not trust is even possible is called benevolence. And benevolence is the extent to which a trustee is believed to want to do good towards the trustor. It is basically like whether or not the person, me as the trustee, or as the truster, the someone, the person who is potentially going to be trusting, if I'm going to trust somebody, I have to, the belief on whether or not that somebody is going to want to do good for me or want to do right by me is their benevolence factor, right? And benevolence is not really something that you can analyze like right off the rip. It's not, it, it develops over time, right? It requires information in order for a judgment to be made. And so like it, right at the very beginning of a relationship, benevolence doesn't really factor into whether or not you trust somebody. But as time goes on, benevolence becomes more, more important. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail later about that. But like a prime example of why benevolence is important is the mentor-mentee relationship. If a mentor does not want to do right by the mentee, then they'd be a terrible mentor. And, and inversely, the only reason that a mentor is trusted by the mentee is because of their of the mentor's benevolence factor. You know, the mentor is not going to benefit from directly because most mentors aren't in direct chains of command of the people they're they're mentoring but they want that sailor to do well you know my mentee that i had was in a different command uh, or ha still have he's in okinawa now but the mentee that i have the only reason that he trusted me was one i you know demonstrated a, a set of skills and abilities that he agreed with or wanted to emulate and then on top of that as the relationship grew, he knew that I had a high benevolence factor towards him. I wasn't going to directly benefit from him being more effective, but I wanted him to be more effective. And I was trying to give him as much advice as I could to achieve that goal. And I don't want to get too down, far down the rabbit hole because I'm going to talk about like mentee and in relation to all of these traits of a potential trustee, but to kind of illustrate this benevolence factor i have a story of this salty um first class that i knew 
years ago, right? And the best way to describe him is gruff. He, he didn't really display any of the traditional abilities of a trusted leader per se, right? Like he didn't have um, very strong communication skills. He was not good at networking. He didn't build the relationships around him or foster positive work environments, really. Like, you know, just generally the abilities were not there, Um and on top of that, it was also fairly obvious that he was not going to make chief. And at the time, I didn't really know why. But looking back on it, it, I can clearly see that it was that lack of ability that his chain of command was never going to trust him enough with anchors. So the one thing he did have, though, was that he always wanted to do right by the sailors around him. It didn't matter if they were worked directly for him or were you know, catty corner to his directorate or only interacted with his direct chain of command, like in a tertiary fashion, he always wanted to do right by the individual sailor. And every time he did that, most of the time it was at his own expense because back to before, like he didn't really have the communication skills or, you know, I'll just call it political capital to put his own neck on the line for those sailors. But he did it anyway, because he always wanted to do right by the sailors. And that benevolence led me to trust him more as like a, a Navy moral compass, but unless as a like, oh man, you have this technical ability that I need to learn and emulate so that I can make chief. Cause it like, that wasn't what was going to happen, but I could always bounce off the idea of like, Hey, you know, H1, I'm thinking of doing this thing. And, uh, what do you think that that's effective? And he sometimes would tell me, hey, you know, I don't think that you're doing the right thing for the sailor. I think you're actually doing that because you want to look good or you're actually doing that for this political side of things. And and sometimes he was right, you know, so he just kind of turned into this Navy moral compass for me. And that because of his benevolence factor and that uh, just kind of identifies how important benevolence can be in a trust-based relationship. And benevolence is one of those things, too, that develops over time, right? Like like I said before, you're not going to get an initial read on somebody's benevolence immediately. Because almost anybody, almost anybody in the Navy, as far as chain of commands go, will sit there and tell you, yeah, I... I absolutely want to do right by you. But, you know, even though everybody says that, we've all had individuals who did not do right by us, at least through our perceptions. So while we all will say that we want to do right, the act being actually benevolent from my perspective or from the potential trustees or trustors perspective is kind of hard to do. And, and it really experiences the only way to get that information. So the next and the final like uh, trait of somebody who can be trusted in order for the trust equation to even be considered as far as Mayer and his colleagues were concerned was something they identified as integrity, right? And integrity is the perception of a trustor that the trustee adheres to a set of principles that the truster finds acceptable. So kind of like benevolence and kind of like abilities, uh, integrity means that whoever I'm potentially going to trust is going to adhere to a certain rule book, right? They have a strong moral compass and they will always act in relation to that compass. It's not necessarily relationship specific like benevolence is. Benevolence is I know that the potential trustee that the trustee is going or is going to do right by me. Integrity is more that I know this trustee will act this way. 
regardless of the relationship with us. And the other really big part of integrity is that whatever that set of principles that the trustee is adhering to, the trustor has to deem it appropriate or find it acceptable. You know, if I know that somebody is always going to act unethically in a given situation, I'm not going to trust them. You can have a high personal integrity, always act the same way in the same situation, but that doesn't mean that you're acting appropriately. Right. So as the trustor, I have to trust that that way that you're always going to act is something that I agree with. And as an example of integrity, another like quick story, there was this chief that I worked with down in Gitmo for um, six months. And he, you know, one of one of the top chiefs I've ever I've ever worked with. And over time, I got to see that he adhered to a specific set of principles. And, and like some of those things are he valued fitness. He wasn't he wasn't good at like dictating his own fitness routine by any means, but he absolutely valued it. He valued walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. He actually very rarely talked at all, to be honest with you. He always asked questions first. And once he felt like everybody in the shop was appropriately heard and validated, then he gave direction, you know, and these were things that he always did no matter what. So over time, because I knew that he was always going to act that way, and that was something that I found acceptable, maybe I wasn't very good at it, but I, it was something that either I wanted to emulate or they were traits that were acceptable to me. I started to trust him more because I knew how he would act in any given situation. So those three things, abilities, Benevolence and integrity are the three aspects of a trustee, the three traits of a trustee that are necessary, at least according to Mayer and his colleagues, that are necessary for trust to even be considered. So to kind of demonstrate the interrelationship of all three of these traits, let's look at that mentor-mentee relationship that we were kind of talking about before, right? A potential mentor, if they have high ability but no integrity, the mentor has the ability to give you great advice, right? They they know the technical aspects of the job, they know how to do the thing, but if they don't have integrity, you're not sure whether or not they would even tell you the right thing or whether or not they would tell you at all or whether or not they would show up to work. There's just so many unknowns because you don't they just have no integrity. They may have the ability, they just don't have the integrity, right? So that's not really a good look for a mentor-mentee relationship or, or trust at all. So let's flip that around. If you look at like a high integrity and no ability, well, you always know how they're going to act, but they might not be able to give you the answers that you need. You know, if they don't have the technical ability on how to write an evaluation or how to conduct a DRB or how to write a counseling chit, they may always want to help you, right? They have that high integrity of of wanting to help the, the mentee or their sailors around them, or they have like traits that you are really liking and, and finding acceptable, but they just don't have the ability to give you the advice. So again, not really a good mentor. So let's look at they have high, both of those things, high integrity and high ability. So now you know that they have the ability to give you the answer and you know that they are always going to act in a particular way regardless of the relationship with you. That's still not a very good mentor-mentee trusting relationship because um, it doesn't mean that the potential mentor is going to give you the, speci- like, the answers because 
they might not necessarily want to do right by you specifically. They might always act in the same way, right? Like they have a high ability that the command is valuing. They might always act uh, in a in the same way in a given situation. Like they are always to work on time and they always have a fresh pressed uniform every day. But unless they have benevolence and the desire to do right by the trustor, then there's no guarantee that that mentor is going to is going to do the thing the way he's supposed to do. So now that we covered the three traits of a trustee or the three things that are required to be there in order for trust to even be evaluated, the flip side of that coin is what what is the trustor's propensity to trust? What is the stable baseline expectation of an individual, the trustor, on how much trust can be placed in a given organizational context um good example of that is in the navy right how much when you see a chief right off the bat how much trust can you place in them just from seeing them off the bat how about for third classes second classes first classes somebody from the aviation community or the sub community or a corpsman right like marines see a corpsman and there's a massive amount of trust there almost without really any input on the corpsman's part. So their propensity to trust corpsmen, a Marines, is much higher. But the key factor of this is that it's generally pretty stable and it's a baseline expectation on how much trust can be placed within a specific context, okay? So we have the two things. We have the traits of a trustee, ability, benevolence, and integrity, and the trustor's propensity to trust. Add those two things together, and that is that creates a metric that Mayer and his colleagues defined as trust. That trust level, that's not just where it ends, right? Because it, like once that trust level is identified using those two different factors, trust can change over time. And that's one of the key things that they wanted to demonstrate within this integrative model is that trust changes over time. So they had to create inside the model the process to show that. So after the trust level is determined, that leads to a perception of risk on the trustor's side. The perception of risk is being constantly evaluated regardless of the level of knowledge of the ability, benevolence, or integrity of a trustee. This means that integrity or the perception of that integrity is more valuable earlier in the relationship, right? If you go in to a given relationship and you had already gotten third party information and we'll get in we'll get into third party trust um, towards the end of this podcast but if you go into a relationship or a meeting with somebody with third party information that this individual has high integrity then that that's going to be way more important because you don't really have an evaluation of what their benevolence is so in this trust or in this perception of risk analysis that every single every person does within a trust evaluation the integrity means more earlier in the relationship but as the relationship develops benevolence becomes more important and it can become so much more important that it can supersede integrity to a certain extent even if you know that somebody will always act in a particular way in a given context and you don't really agree with it if you also know that that same person will want to do right by you no matter what you can kind of overlook that you don't agree on an integrity issue because you believe that no they're still going to try and do right by me so you can overlook those other shortfalls in your opinion 
of that person in the integrity side as the relationship goes on. But early in the relationship, integrity evaluation is going to be vastly important. Once a perception of risk is created, there's some sort of, it's a lot like ORM to be honest with you, but after trust has been defined, now we are looking at in that relationship, is there a high level of risk? Is there a low level of risk? Am I going to be okay if I trust this person and take a risk inside of this relationship? That evaluation has to happen. But once you have that evaluation, that that baseline, this is how risky this given situation will be if I choose to trust this individual. That results in either taking a risk or not taking a risk. And this is referred to by Mayer and his colleagues as risk taking in the relationship. And this is the funda fundamental part of trust as they define it. Trust is defined as the willingness to take a risk within a specific relationship. Okay, so you have to get to the point where you understand the risk and then you have to be willing to take it. Once you are willing to take that risk in a relationship, that's when trust is there. Actually taking the risk affects trust. So the actual act of taking the risk doesn't necessarily come into play on what trust is defined as or what or how trust is evaluated. But once you take the risk, that creates an outcome of some kind, right? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there. So we're, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But trust is a willingness to take a risk within a specific relationship. That's why I said earlier at the very beginning of this podcast that it's not generalizable. It is something that is personal because you have to evaluate an individual's abilities, their benevolence, their integrity, your baseline level of trust in a given organizational context, bring all that together and then create a perception of risk. And now are you willing to take that risk or are you not willing to take that risk? If you are, you trust that person. Actually taking the risk affects trust in the feedback process, um, but it is not trust itself since taking the risk can be mandated before trust is formed, right? Like you can be forced to take a risk in a relationship without you trusting somebody. So that's not really how trust is defined, but you willing to take that risk, that is how trust is defined, okay? And as an example of that, I had a I had a fairly incompetent LPO from my perspective, again, and, and I'm not, you know, trying to rag on anybody or, or you know, that's why I'm not using names or anything like that. But at the time, from my perspective, it, he was a fairly incompetent LPO. It's not that he had like a low benevolence or low integrity, like he acted the same way most of the time, right? And he actually, he really wanted to do well. Um, so I would say his benevolence and integrity were high, but his abilities were just low, you know? You can blame that on a whole slew of factors that we, you know, can talk about in a podcast that's not an academic style review, but, you know, he just, he, in my opinion, he was just not a good LPO. And I had checked on board and I was quickly uh, building rapport with with sailors in the unit. And this was one of the larger units uh, in the area of operations that I was in. Since I was gaining this rapport and I had like a strong set of abilities from the perspective of the sailors I was gaining rapport in. I mean, really, you can just look at, I was building rapport because sailors were trusting me and that took them 
perceiving me to have abilities, benevolence, integrity. But I was building a good rapport there, right? And I was also building a good rapport with the chief at the time. And so now sailors were kind of treating me like the LPO. I wasn't the LPO, but they were treating me that way. I was the one they were going to. I was answering the questions. I was doing the thing. And that didn't really sit well with me because I wasn't the LPO, right? And I wanted to make give the LPO the best shot possible. I wasn't trying to like run over anybody or take a job or anything like that. So I sat down with him a lot and was trying to kind of mentor and coach him to be a more effective LPO from my perspective and the perspective of the sailors who were giving me input. So those conversations didn't really bear any fruit, right? Like, I, I don't know if he just wasn't listening to me or if I wasn't being effective in how I was coaching. I, you know, there's a lot of different factors there, but they weren't, they weren't effective. And it was starting to really be seen throughout the unit. It was starting starting to falter pretty significantly. There was a lot of big things falling through the cracks. So I had to take a risk in my relationship with that chief and basically ask him, hey, you got to replace the LPO. It doesn't necessarily have to be with me, but he's not hitting the wickets. He's not doing the thing. He doesn't have the abilities and this unit deserves a more effective LPO. I had no idea how this conversation was was going to work out for me, but I had to trust and I did trust the LCPO because I was willing to take that risk when I had that conversation. So I had to trust him that he wouldn't you know, like it wouldn't negatively impact me somehow as far as like him thinking I'm trying to take a job or something like that, because I wasn't. I, I just I was trying to get the best thing done for the unit. I didn't even want the job, if I'm being completely honest. As soon as I was willing to have that conversation, that's when trust was established on my end towards my chief. And admittedly, this is one of the, the major problems in this model, is it is a one-direction thing, right? It, it explains trust in a unidirectional way from one person to another, but not from another person back. That's one of the issues with this model, but... I really liked this model uh, in the research that I did because of how clear it was, how almost intuitive it was, and it, it's kind of actionable. If you're trying to get somebody to trust you, well, increase your the three traits of being a trustee. Increase your abilities, increase your demonstration of benevolence so they can perceive it better, and espouse your integrity more, but I'm getting ahead of myself again. So once that risk-taking in a relationship occurs, some kind of outcome is formed, right? Like the person takes the action, takes the risk inside of the relationship. I had that conversation with my chief. No reaction from my chief is still an outcome. So once that outcome is formed, whether it's positive or negative, it's then evaluated against the trustee's factors of abilities, integrity, and benevolence. For instance, if there was a positive outcome from this risk-taking within the relationship in that story I told about my chief, if my chief was like, oh, okay, and went and fired the LPO, since that's what I wanted at the time, that would have been a positive outcome. And I would have taken that evaluation of like, okay, I got a positive outcome here. And I would have applied it back towards that chief's traits, the abilities, benevolence, or integrity. And I would have like adjusted the levels of those three things in my own perception based on that outcome. So if he immediately went and fired him, then, okay, maybe that plays into his integrity. Uh, maybe that plays into his ability to make a decisive decision, you know, like that kind of stuff. If it's negative, right, if my chief 
starts yelling at me as like somebody who like a mutineer or something like that, then okay, well, maybe he doesn't have the ability to fire an LPO or maybe his benevolence level is a little low towards me specifically, or maybe he will just never fire his LPO when it comes to uh, like an integrity standpoint. So every outcome from risk-taking in a relationship is evaluated back in this little feedback loop that happens in this whole dynamic process towards the abilities of a trustee. And then that files back into the next perception of risk evaluation that you do specific to that individual. So to build like major implications of you, of this model that, that Mayer uh, and his colleagues created in 1995 is one trust is dynamic. It is not a static trait, right? It doesn't stay the same. It doesn't uh, like once you have trust, you can't keep it indefinitely. It's a dynamic, almost a skill, not even a trait at all. It's a, it's a skill to build trust because of it. It's a dynamic skill is in an organizational setting between another person, you have to portray, you specifically have to portray a high level of ability, benevolence towards that individual, and integrity in a given organizational context. These are perceptions though. So you can't directly, you know, go make somebody perceive something of you, but you can control your outputs, right? That's the only thing you can control is your outputs. If you want to increase your integrity, well, maybe you need to make conscious effort in making people notice what you're doing. Or, you know, if you if you want to increase your integrity on, I will always wear a pressed uniform every Monday and every Friday I'm going to wear khakis uh, and every week weekend I'm going to shine my boots or whatever. If you want to do it every day, whatever it is that you want to do in order to increase your integrity, people have to perceive that. Don't go running around being like, hey, do you check out my freshly pressed uniform because then you'll just kind of look like a, a clown, but make sure you're spending the effort to go around and talk to your sailors, right? Let them observe you in your environment that you created and hope that they catch it, right? If you want to increase your benevolence in a specific relationship with someone specific to increase their trust towards you, then make sure you're espousing to them or you're making them believe that you want to do good for them. And and you can't just go up there. It's not, like I said earlier, it's not one of those things that you can just go up and be like, hey, I'd really like to do something good for you. You you gotta actually do the good thing. And if you don't know, if somebody, and this is a big thing, if you don't know how somebody perceives good towards them, go ask them. Because you might be doing from your perception good towards them, but that's not increasing your benevolence because they don't think it's good. So if you don't know what your sailors or what this specific person that you want to build trust with desires from you specifically, go ask because it, you're not going to be effective otherwise. Or if you want to uh, increase people's perceptions of your abilities, teach a class or even just like within a specific task that you're doing at work. Like if you're writing evaluations or if you're writing a counseling uh, like a positive counseling for somebody, you know, sanitize the counseling shit as far as personally identifiable information, but pull your entire shop in and be like, hey, I'm writing a counseling shit right now. I'd like to show you guys how to do that. It, you know, teach a teach a class on it that portrays ability. So that's those are three very specific ways that you can increase. You can build trust with somebody specifically, because, again, this is a unidirectional thing. If you want to build trust with someone specifically, 
find ways to make your abilities more obvious, to have them perceive a high benevolence towards them, and make them understand that in a given organizational context, you will always act the same way, which in all reality just requires you to always act the same way. People will always pick up on what you're doing as long as you're actually doing it, right? Walk the walk. Uh, And that pretty much covers the whole model in 1995. So the same three people, Shorman, Mayer, and Davis, updated this work in 2007. They took that 1995 integrative model that they created and they published another article regarding that model in 2007. Again, it was in the Academy of Management Review Journal. And one of the first things they wanted to talk about is how did the model, you know, this had been, uh, what, 20, 12 years. Jeez, that was bad math. There was, it it had been 12 years since they created the model and they kind of wanted to provide an update and an analysis on how accurate is our model? How, how effective has it been? So the first thing they, they looked at was can this model be used on an organizational level or can you just keep expanding it? Can it be used on a global level? And what they found was, yeah, in the most part, it abs- you absolutely can regarding like looking at specific like organizational level. If, if two organizations, let's say the army and the navy wanted to build trust between each other, they would have to do the same thing. It, it would be on an individual level where that trust was was actually being built, but organizations can tend to act the same way. Organizations have a certain level of abilities. If we were gonna evaluate trust on sea warfare and we were gonna look at the army, well, we're not gonna trust them there because they just don't have that ability. But maybe we'll look at in a realm where both the Navy and the army operate, such as uh, in the air. We might trust the army to give close air support to our marines and sailors who are operating on the front lines which we do all the time and we do that because we know they have the ability to put the rounds on target we know that they have a high benevolence factor towards friendly forces want they want to do right by sailors at the expense of the enemy because we want to kill them and break their stuff and they have a high integrity level that there's SOPs and policies in place that will dictate exactly how, for the most part, they will act in a given situation. If you call in close air support, you're either going to get it or you're not going to get it based on policy. So at an organizational level, the Navy can start to trust the Army in specific circumstances. And this is true for, you know, any organization. It doesn't have to be just strictly military. And, you know, that's the context that we're talking about on this podcast. But that's another thing that they talked about was that this is a crossed industry that generally in order for trust to happen, the trustee has to have the high ability, high level of benevolence and a high integrity level. And the trustor has to have a certain propensity to trust. There's evaluation that happens, perception of risk, and then a willingness or unwillingness to take that risk. That creates an outcome and the outcome is evaluated based on the trustee's abilities, benevolence or integrity. That's just the way that trust works and it can work across industry, across organizations, um, everything like that. The next thing that they did was they evaluated, was there a way to bridge a gap between the willingness to take a risk and the trust an individual has? You know, before there's a perception of risk that is created, there, there's that that trust. And that trust is the result of the abilities, benevolence, and integrity of the trustee and the trustor's propensity to trust. Those two things create 
a baseline analysis of trust of the trustee. They wanted to evaluate, well, hey, what if that baseline level of trust is lower than the willingness to take a risk? So they wanted to find out if there was something that an organization or an individual can do in order to bridge that gap between those two things. And they found that something called a control system can be put in place in order to build trust by bridging that gap. You know, if an individual is not willing to take a risk in a situation, a control system can bridge the gap between the reason, like the baseline level of trust and what their current willingness risk willingness is what is a control system well in our context in the navy it's things like sops uh, junior qualification records or, or requirements jqrs pqs's warfare quals deox surveys that kind of thing that's what control systems are to explain that if we have a baseline level of trust evaluation towards our chief for instance or you know from my context if I have a baseline level of trust for my LPO and there comes a situation where I'm just not willing to take a risk in that specific relationship, there can be things put in place that bridge that gap for me, right? Like my senior leadership, like department heads or whatever could put in SOPs that kind of dictate exactly on an in integrity level, exactly how people will act in ambiguous situations or just the way that I communicate, right? When I'm asking my LPO to do something, I can try and increase their benevolence towards me by building a relationship outside of just a, a leader follower relationship. And if you're, you know, like peer to peer, PQSs can build that relationship, right? Like if someone shows up to the BAS, which is the uh, battalion aid station medical for Marines, um, division specifically. If someone shows up to the BAS and they don't have an FMF pin, well, that's not going to bridge any gap with me, right? Like that even might even factor into a lower level of trust towards them. But if they show up with an FMF pin, I'm going to assume there's a baseline level of trust there, or there's a baseline level of knowledge and experience and, and whatnot that while I might not have trusted somebody without an FMF pin in that exact same situation, well, when you have an FMF pin, Maybe I will trust these these control systems can help bridge that gap. Once that gap is bridged, then the risk taking within that relationship can happen, which produces the outcome and then creates feedback and the loop is reevaluated. Right. And maybe the next time around, if it was a positive outcome, you don't need that control for that individual. So that's how controls can be used as a mechanism to build trust. Now, a little bit of a cautionary tale here. Too many control mechanisms can actually prevent trust from being built. Because if if you're only trusting somebody because of the control system, and there's so many control systems in place that the level of risk inside of that relationship is almost nothing, then there is no way that trust will ever be built because the outcome that is evaluated is on how effective that control system is and not the relationship specifically. So if you're going to use controls to build trust within a relationship, make sure they're controls that one, you can scale back over time and two, are not redundant controls that are already created through other means. A primary example of that is career development boards these days. Like they are a incredible tool and it is a prime time opportunity for leadership of a shop to talk with a, a particular sailor and provide guidance in a relationship and those cdbs can be used to 
increase benevolence perceptions, increase integrity perceptions, increase ability perceptions both ways. But because we use CDBs for literally everything, or you don't you don't pass the test, you get a CDB. You don't get selection board eligible, you get a CDB. You get a CDB at six months and 12 months and 18 months and 24 months and you get midterms and you know, like all of these different things that are all redundant control systems now they're not really effective anymore because there's no risk in the relationship. So trust itself is not being built because we are reliant on these control systems now. If you're talking like from a leadership standpoint, if you want to develop trust between you and your juniors, you have to be the one willing to take risk within that relationship. Otherwise, if you're not taking risk within that relationship, you're probably leaning too heavily on control systems in order to bridge those gaps. What does this mean? This means you have to be transparent as a leader. You have to be transparent as a leader because you are not really taking a risk unless you're vulnerable. And I know like you've heard it before, but Brene Brown does some great stuff on vulnerability. And if you're not as a leader being vulnerable in the relationships with your junior sailors somehow, then you're not actually taking risks within that relationship and you're not building trust. Specifically, you're not building trust towards your junior sailors. And if you're not building trust to your junior sailors, are they really going to be building trust towards you? You know, it's a, it's a two-way street, even though this model that we're talking about here is unidirectional. It's still a two-way street because Every time you're evaluating trust towards that sailor, they're evaluating trust towards you as well. So transparency and vulnerability is crucial because otherwise you're just not taking a risk. So how can you actually be vulnerable specific to this concept of building trust? Well, show your entire shop the repercussions that you're experiencing when you take the risk, right? If you take a risk in a relationship, whether that's a relationship somebody outside the shop, somebody within the shop, it doesn't really matter, but show the repercussions of that. Let them see the feedback loop, right? That creates an entire work center feedback loop on trust. And suddenly, because we talked about before, this model is scalable, right? It's not just individuals who can use this scale. Now entire work centers can be like, all right, do we want to coalesce enough to start evaluating trust towards other work centers. You know, like you have to show, be transparent and show the repercussions of the risk, show the outcomes that you're experiencing. The next thing that they wanted to address, and they actually addressed it at the end of the 95 journal entry, was that one of the problems with their model was that it didn't really talk about emotions and how emotions can impact trust. In 2007, they did create the update and provided the research that emotions do affect trust in a risk-taking relationship. Emotions can cause irrational risk-taking, right? If you are emotionally tied towards uh, somebody, right? Especially like family relationships, or if your best friend happens to work at the same job or in the same work center as you, you may be willing to take a little more risk with them in an organizational setting because of that friendship, even though the abilities in their friendship, the whole reason you trust them, don't really translate to an organizational setting. That's why they're calling it irrational risk-taking, because the abilities don't translate 
So while this is more of a short-term thing, uh, research doesn't really exist to understand how emotion can play long-term into trust in, in the model of trust. And some of the questions Meyer and his colleagues talked about in this 2007 update was, um, do emotions dissipate eventually? Does emotion impact cognitive process, which trustees traits are evaluated? Like, is it no longer an objective evaluation of the outcome that happened? And overall, the conclusion they came to was that we don't know. We don't know and the research doesn't exist. And, and as a, from everything that I found, research doesn't exist even still on that. But they do know that emotions do impact risk-taking within a relationship. Next thing they did in their in the 2007 update was talk about what happens when trust is violated. You take that risk within a relationship, it creates an outcome, like a positive outcome, You the feedback loop happens in the next situation when you're expecting, you already trust them, now we get a negative reaction, right? So it's a violation of that trust. Well, that's likely to be an emotional event for the trustor. Uh, and that's which can kind of clue what we just talked about in regards to emotions and create irrational behavior. But in regards to that, if you're going to try and repair a trust violation, it has to address the trustworthiness factor that was broken. If the violation happened because someone told you, hey, when this situation happens, I mean, go back to my episode that I recorded the interview, right? Um, episode 71, I had someone tell me, hey, when stuff hits the fan, I'm going to I'm going to have you. I got you. No problem. And stuff hit the fan. They did not have me. Any kind of repair to to trust with me between that individual has to address the fact that they let me down in that specific scenario. And that's true of any trust violation. You know, if there's other if there's other factors that come into it, then to repair the trust, you have to address that specifically. And this can be done one of two ways. You can repair the trust either within the feedback loop or indirectly or to the attributes themselves directly. So if you had a trust violation that you're trying to repair based on an ability of, of yours, right? You didn't do something that somebody thought you had the ability to do. Well, in order to repair that trust, you have to demonstrate that you have the ability to do that thing. And then uh, the trust will be repaired. And that's the directly aspect of it because you're impacting the attribute that itself indirectly within the feedback loop you can try and repair the trust by influencing the feedback that trustor is getting in regards to the situation if they're going to go talk with a mentee or a mentor or third party or something like that you can try and demonstrate that that was an outlier, whatever experience they had, the trust violation was an outlier to your actual abilities and hope that the feedback they get is, is more positive towards you. The next thing that Mayer and his colleagues did in 2007 was look at, does culture impact trust? And the, these are kind of areas where they're like, hey, not a lot of research has been done here. Um, and this is probably something to look into. But one of the things that he brought up was Gert Hofstede's cultural dimensions, which I, you know, I think that might actually be foundations number three is cultural dimensions. But anyway, um, Gert Hofstede in 1960 kind of created these generalizable dimensions, which he evaluated cultures around the entire globe. They were things like individualism, uh, masculinity. What else was on there? 
um, power distance, all kinds of stuff. And maybe we'll get into that in a podcast in the future. But in this 2007 update, they actually reference these things. And they talk about how like a culture that is more collectivist will have a higher propensity to trust. Individuals in a collectivist culture will naturally trust people more because that's just the way their culture is. Whereas countries in an individual, like high in the individualism factor, um, will have a lower propensity to trust. And explain this, you know, the United States has a 91 out of 100 score on the individualism factor. We are highly individualistic, super high, really like, like third standard deviation high (laughs) in comparison, Japan has like a 46, um, on the collectivist score. And a a really good example of the differences between that is that when the Fukushima reactor, you know, when that earthquake happened that broke the reactor and then the tsunami happened and just, you know, they were having a nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear power plant, Japan, which is highly collectivist, the elder generation of the surrounding city was the one ones that like volunteered to be pouring water on the reactor to prevent it from melting so that the younger generations didn't have to do it because in their collectivist culture, it was their responsibility as the older generation to make sure that the younger generation could carry on because they were naturally going to go longer anyway. Whereas, you know, if a similar situation happened in the United States, it's much more likely that people would be like, well, Uh, That's not really my job. Um, There's definitely somebody trained to do that, and we'll just let them handle that. So that's kind of the difference, right? And and that, at least the difference of individualist versus collectivist, and that cultural dynamic plays into an a a truster's propensity to trust. Operating in a culture with a with a high individualism score can lead to lower natural propensity to trusts. This also impacts the uh, traits of trust, right? Ability, benevolence, and integrity, like how we even evaluate those things. You know, our cultural lens that we look through will define how we evaluate somebody's benevolence towards us or integrity or ability. Um, Because integrity is just, does somebody act in a way that I can agree with all the time? Ability, if somebody displays collectivist abilities all the time, but we're in an individualist society, I'm not necessarily going to value those abilities. So it's just an interesting dynamic that they found at the conclusion of this 2007 paper that built like cultural dynamics impact uh, the, the ability of trust to even happen. So now that we've talked about um, the mayor and their colleagues, 95 integrative model and the 2007 update, I kind of want to get into um, the rest of the research that I did over the past couple of weeks. And essentially the big takeaways from this, uh, at least what I want to try and explain via podcast format, are that there's six different types of trust. And this was put out in 2017, so fairly recent research here. So there's six different types of trust in an organizational setting. The first of those is called dispositional trust. And dispositional trust is based on an individual's predisposition to trust and founded on experiences with relationships and the outlook on the human nature that then guides decisions. Basically, according to this 2007 update, they're just talking about propensity to trust that 
that Mayer and their colleagues found out in 95, right? It's also a really hard type of trust to predict. It may get you past initial interactions because it's it's based on somebody's predisposition to trust and can be necessary in our line of work since we have such a high turnover rate at any given command. You know, if you really think about it, one third of the entire Navy PCSs every year. Any given command, a third of it disappears every year. Bonkers. Anyway, so dispositional trust is is inherently important there because with that high of a turnover, you have to assume that the person who's coming in to replace whoever just left has a similar ability because they're filling the same billet, right? But it, it can't really be relied on as a sole source of trust for a long time. The next type of trust that I want to, that they talk about is history-based trust. And this relies on a buildup of interactions over time, right? Expectations are met, they increase trust, while those that are unmet decrease trust. History-based trust is highly solidified. It's also very easy to lose. So once you have it, unless you lose it, you know, it's not naturally just going to fade over time. But once expect, you know, the first expectation that isn't met, the trust starts to lose. And this reminds me of like a story that my dad always used to tell me as a kid. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tra- trading out language here, but he used to say that 10 oh darns are worth one attaboy. People will always remember the negative aspects of a, of a relationship within this history based trust construct. Most of the time, positive interactions are not remembered with such detail as negative interactions, right? Everybody can recall their least favorite chief, but when you ask about your favorite chief, the specific interactions probably aren't as solid in your memory. The third type of trust is third-party dependent trust, and this is kind of what I was talking about before in trust repair attempts and also getting to know somebody's integrity level before a before any interaction right the early stages of a trust relationship in that model is third party dependent trust so it's trust that is determined based on secondhand information it's a large component of this is gossip though which means that trust is bolstered for some people and degraded for others depending on the subjective view of the person who's doing the gossiping trust can either be built or destroyed based on this third party's uh, input. And the only reason that the third party can even have input on a trust relationship is that they themselves are trusted. A good example of this in the Navy construct, the call ahead between leadership uh, of command since they have personal relationships, right? Like if CMCs know each other really well and they're like, hey, or not even CMCs, right? Chiefs, LPOs, second classes, whatever, if the pers- if the place where a sailor is going um, has leadership that is a close friend with the leadership that is losing, that conversation may happen. It's like, hey, you're getting the sailor. They're good to go. Hard charger. Make sure you get them a good billet because they're going to, you know, they're, they're on the fast track to chief. Or it can go the other way, which is, hey, you know, you're getting a sailor. They probably need a little extra guidance. Like, you know, they're good. They're good people. But they've also got these areas that, that need a little bit of help. So in the grand scheme of things, this is highly subjective. Because it's highly subjective, this third-party dependent trust, it's not very strong. It won't withstand scrutiny very well. Relying on this trust means that you believe that trust built between the third party and yourself is generalizable enough 
that all people will also have trust with that third party would have trust with you as well, right? Like, because him and I like each other, well, anybody who likes him also likes me, right? There's a little bit of a of cognitive dissonance that happens in this evaluation, which is why it's not really as strong as these other types of, of trust. It still exists, but it's just not as strong. And this adds even another layer to this highly personal thing we call trust. The next kind of trust, the fourth type, is the category-based trust. And this is one of the big ones in the Navy. Um, it Category-based trust is anchored in membership of a group or organization. For instance, you know, going through season, one of the things you hear all the time is trust the mess. Um, you know, that you can have this just baseline level of trust with anybody who wears anchors because they are within a specific category of individuals. They are chiefs. The same thing happens as like, oh, well, you're part of medical, so I can trust you with, you know, my mental health or, or substance abuse or family issues or whatever, right? Like, and this is kind of specific to my experience in FMF world, but just because I belong to the category of medical means that I can be trusted with every, you know, X amount of things. Uh, and then other things are like officers versus enlisted, you know, enlisted people trust only enlisted people with certain kinds of things. Prime example is evaluations, right? Like for the most part, we don't ask officers for input on enlisted evaluations. We just like, hey, read this and sign it. It's the evaluation that they deserve. And officers don't really trust enlisted with giving advice on officer things, right? It's just because people belong to certain categories, there's a certain level of trust that's built into that. Um, this type of trust is reliant on both an in-group and an out-group dynamic, though. So if only a type of person that is within this category can be trusted, that inherently means that anybody outside of that category can't or at least doesn't have as much trust as the in-group. This can lead to some inherent biases. This can lead to unfair treatment, even if it's not necessarily meant and it can also because of that can lead to a loss of trust towards the trustor from anybody within the out group the fifth base type of trust is role-based trust so this is founded on knowing that a person assigned to a specific job can fulfill its requirement it owes a little bit more to reliance on the business processes um, that underpin the job instead of the individual who's in the job right commanding officers there's a baseline trust that commanding officers have. Sailors trust that the commanding officer is not going to, um, you know, at the extreme of military service, get them into situations where they'll, where they'll die. That's, you know, a baseline level of trust. But that has more to do with the training that the commanding officer went through before they got to that position, the abilities that they had to demonstrate in order to get the evaluations or fit reps in order to get to the commanding officer position, you know, like it much more reliance on the business processes of the Navy that create commanding officers, much less on the captain so-and-so who's actually filling that chair. The last uh, type of trust that I want to talk about here is rule-based trust. And this establishes a sense of normalcy in an organization and elicits a trust binding force. It persuades us to take for granted that people will follow directives and behave in consistent procedural ways. This is 
This type of trust is easily lost if a trustee is observed not following the rules. Um, this type of trust is also is a little bit different too. Like it seems similar, but it's different from role or category and that it's based on rules of the organization. Role is based on business processes, not necessarily formal rules, but just business processes like going to schools for the commanding officer example or um, the board that selects commanding officers. And it's different from category-based because category-based just applies to anybody within that specific category. Rule-based trust is there is a, a set of rules that mandates or ensures that trust can be given in this situation. Rule-based trust is very similar to what I was talking about in regards to controls that can be put in place that bridge the gap between a baseline trust analysis and a willingness to take that risk. Doctors have this type of trust because of the Hippocratic Oath, right? There's a rule that everybody knows that doctors aren't allowed to cause harm to their patients. So you naturally trust what a doctor is telling you as effective information. It's not really, you don't trust them because they're a doctor, right? You trust them because doctors have to say the Hippocratic Oath. So that's the difference between like a category-based trust and a rule-based trust. So this leads me into my C stories, right? In conclusion, I wanna, I wanna tell two different C stories. One is where trust was built and the next is an epic story of trust failure of mine. Because ultimately I want you to learn from my experiences in the context of this academic look. First, let's talk about my epic failure because I like ending on a positive note. So I was finishing a very successful tour as the acting chief for a training detachment. Um, my gaining CMC that I was coming on board to had a training pipeline that recently was under a type of investigation and the training pipeline was found at fault of, of a thing, right? When I reported on board, this CMC sat me down on his couch in his office and, and said, hey, this course is messed up and you're with your background, you're going to be a perfect fit to go and fix it. And so that created a mindset in me. I was like, okay, well, I'm going over here to fix this situation. So when I first head over to where like the instructor shop, I was armed with this knowledge and this now this inherent bias that this training pipeline and the instructors who were running it inherently needed my guidance to be effective instructors. Since that's what the CMC told me, right? Like that's just, that was the mindset and the framework that I was given on my way over there. As you can imagine, that attitude led to a fairly aggressive approach, right? I had to go into this situation and I had to fix it. CMC had tasked me with the job. Nobody else was capable of doing it. And that approach was rooted in my integrity. And, and I took everything that happened in this shop personally, right? This was my name on this shop now, and I had to fix it because it wasn't fixed before. And I never really took the time to evaluate that. However, my personal, and this is the lesson learned here, my personal integrity doesn't necessarily match up with everyone's. And me aggressively sticking to my integrity prevented me from showcasing my benevolence towards these sailors, the instructors, or my abilities as a technical instructor for this course. So essentially this resulted in a, a downward spiral that ended up out of control because the instructors, because of my aggressive approach towards 
influencing them to meet my integrity standards. So the instructors decided to start skirting the rules when they could because they didn't trust me, right? They didn't want to follow my rules. In my trust evaluation of the instructors, this proved in my feedback loop as proof that they in turn needed my guidance. So this just kept spiraling further and further. And eventually what happened when I left there it was almost celebrated. I could ju- I could feel the tension in the shop before I left, and I couldn't understand how it got there and what I could do about it. Um, and it took me almost three years to even think about calling any of the instructors from that shop to kind of discuss it and figure out what happened. Um, and I, I'll tell you, though, I recently did call one of those instructors, and I discovered that fundamentally... I was the cause of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, that didn't allow me to trust the instructors due to their perceived lack of ability, right? Like I, I perceived they didn't have a, an ability to do something. I never really took the time to evaluate whether or not they had the ability because my lack of trust kept getting confirmed. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, that in turn confirmed their perception of a lack of benevolence of me so the trust was just fundamentally broken within this story and there was really nothing any of us could have done about it you know looking back I I should have gone in there and and just taken a second and you know not thought I needed to fix everything and taken a really good personal accounting of the shop and figure out even if there was things I wanted to change so that was the bad story Let's do the good story because I like ending on the good note, like I said. So um, this is a kind of a recent one. Uh, I had a sailor check on board and we worked in the same area. So I saw her pretty often. Uh, she was an HM3. Um, so direct interaction was limited with me due to rank differences. But I got a pretty good sense of her baseline attitude and demeanor. One at one day after her being TAD for a week to a course, she returned to work and was off is really the best way to describe it. I, you know, I didn't know her that well, but I could tell that something was just wrong. I approached her and asked if she was okay. And I could tell that there was something, you know, kind of bubbling under the surface. I could see it in her eyes that there was something she was about. She was determining whether or not she could trust me with this information. Um, and, and eventually she decided that she was not willing to take the risk in that relationship. And she said, no chief, everything's fine. And I was like, well, that's just not true. So I nodded uh, and I kind of like gave her like a squinting, like knowing look like, okay. And I said, you know what, if you want to, let's go somewhere a little more privately. Cause when I first asked her this question, we were in a fairly public area and I just walked away and I hoped that, hoped that she would follow. And she ended up following me and we went to a, to a less public location and I, and I took my rank tab off of my type threes. I took my anchor off and I said, Hey, my name's Andrew. Um, from Andrew to, uh, you know, I'll just call her Sarah. Are you okay? And she just broke down. Uh, she told me about, she told me this story about how she was assaulted at her last command by a chief. She reported that assault, suffered repercussions from that. Like she got moved to departments and directorates, which impacted her evals long-term, or at least that's her perception of it. Um, and in addition to that, the investigation seemed to drag on forever while she, and recently while she was TAD to a course, um, she ran into that, that chief who, who assaulted her and 
he was still a chief. He was still active duty. And that just crushed her. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, like she just broke down and trusted me so deeply with that. But why did she trust me? Because I represented everything that she had a lot of information not to trust. I was a chief. I was a male. I was a sailor. I was in a position of authority over her, you know, like, and, and I called her when I was talking about doing this podcast, I, um, called her to figure out, Hey, why did you trust me with that information? Why, why didn't you just stick to your guns about, no, everything's fine. And what she told me was that when I took my rank off and spoke to her from Andrew instead of chief, she felt that she could trust me because Andrew clearly had a strong sense of wanting to take care of her my benevolence was high. My benevolence was high enough to overcome her distrust distrust for all of the different categories that I belonged to. Uh, The mess, my gender, the positions that I was in, and it allowed her to take a risk within our relationship. So the control that I implemented was taking off my rank and talking to her from a standpoint of Andrew instead of a place of my rank. That then created an outcome for her which she viewed as positive. And after I called her to ask why uh, uh, this call that I'm talking about, she told me that when people complain to her about chiefs now um, or about their chain of command, that she uses me as her reference point, that there are good chiefs out there. So these two stories prove how delicate trust and distrust actually are. I was able to torch any chance of trust I had with that instructor cadre, but I was also able to turn that HM3's lack of a propensity to trust on its head. This leads to a final bit of operational advice that I'm going to give on how to build trust. Be a person first. Be a person who understands, or at least tries to understand, where somebody else comes from. Like what was demonstrated in episode 73 when we talked to the TikTok chief, right? You may have an initial reaction to an event, but you have to take the time to evaluate that reaction. Take the time to ask the questions and let your benevolence and integrity show. If you rely solely on abilities to build trust, eventually you won't know something and your trust will be shattered. So you have to build all three aspects of a trustee or else it's never going to happen. So overall, trust is an extraordinarily complex thing involving past experiences, current realities, baseline abilities, morals, and ethics. The military in general has a pretty high propensity to trust each other, which is hard to remember sometimes when you're surrounded by military constantly. But I promise, in a room full of civilians, when you notice another military person there, you'll cling to them because you do have, at some level, a shared reality, which has a shared trust. Remember this, and leverage that to your advantage when approaching a situation. Feel free to trust people in the military. It's okay, right? Uh, and that's that's all I have for you today, right? That's our academic look on what building trust is, um, what makes trust, what makes trust, and how some operational advice on how to actually build trust within relationships in your life. So first things first, at a conclusion, I didn't do this on my first one, and I because for, I forgot. So tonight. I have to give a shout out to my researcher, Brendan, who's one of my very good friends, and he has given me access to a massive university library that I wouldn't have otherwise because I'm not currently going to school. 
Uh, and on top of that, he's also helping me find the right articles and research to be reading. So, you know, I just want to make clear that behind every good academic out there is a fantastic librarian. And I want to give him the credit that he deserves. So, you know, Brendan, next box of donut is on me. All right. Um, I'm looking for new ideas on what to do for foundations. Number three, I think I kind of ran into it. Um, while I was recording this, maybe talking about, um, cultural dimensions with Gert Hofstede, that could be, that could be kind of a fun thing, but if there's anything out there, right, like formal concepts that you've heard of, but want a better understanding, or if there's like some leadership rabbit hole that is really cool that you understand intimately that, um, you'd like to have one of these podcasts done on point me in that direction, you know, uh, or do you just want to tell me that for my second podcast, I'm still doing a terrible job. Hey, I'm for it, right? Reach out. Don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com. You can direct message us or interact with posts on Facebook and Instagram, D Guts Podcast. Um, we got D Guts Podcast on Reddit, uh, and we also have a subreddit called D Guts Podcast. You can find us on all the major Navy subreddits. Trust me, you'll see us there. Um, even if you don't want to reach us directly, please interact with the posts that we make because on the various platforms, because it really just helps social media algorithms get us out to where we can do the most good uh, and where we need to be. Uh, if you do want to support us, that would be awesome because there are bills in regards to this. So dgutspodcast.com slash shop. Uh, it keeps the lights on, pays our subscription fees and all that stuff so that it doesn't have to come out of our pocket. Um, there's some cool stuff in there like stickers, shirts, and buttons and whatnot. Look, you get something, we get to keep the lights on, and we get to keep bringing you this content so everybody's happy, right? Go check it out. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure today with you. Thank you for listening, and as always, don't give up the ship. 